series, uh, for those of you, if this is your first time here, this series is a, sh- a series of short statements that Jesus made just before he was uh, beaten, brutalized, crucified, died on a cross, and rose on the third day, right? The, this is, this is, these statements are what came to define his movement for the church that we are in today, right? The church, the modern-day church. And, uh, and this is about the importance and the value of these statements that, in essence, are worth repeating for us as believers in Christ, right? And so Jesus' final statement in our series is, go and make disciples Go and make disciples, all of which we've heard this before, right? We may, excuse me, we may not know where to find it, right? But we've heard it before. Go and make disciples. And so, um, again, if you're near to South Hills or watching us online, I start all of my series with a question. I love asking a question. The purpose behind it, like, this guy's so nosy. Always got remember this, remember that. Do you recall? Right? Yes. This is this is. There's a reason behind it. There's a reason to the to the madness, right? Uh, and it's really for. I, I'm always asking a question to kind of get your your juices. You're not you know juices in your head going and kind of give you direction on where we're going, where this message is leading us. And so I always thought that if we could start off with a question to kind of get this, your, your mind in the right place because some of you, your stomach is growling. Some of you are mad at your kids, right? Your hair is not done the way you want it. Your heel broke, like all of this coming into church, right? And, and, and you have other things, your mind is on other things. So this question kind of brings it all in, kind of ties it into what we're go- where we're going. So my question this morning is directed to everyone, whether you are uh, an older person or you are a younger person, whether you have kids or you don't have kids. And the question is, is this, right? Do you remember a time, do you remember a time when you were teaching, maybe you were teaching your kids, or maybe you were learning to ride your bike, right? Go back into the, the memory box, go back into that moment where you were teaching your kids or you were learning to ride a bike, or, or, or maybe, maybe if you, because there might be someone that doesn't know how to ride a bike, and I don't want to alienate you, I don't want to ostracize you, okay, but maybe think of something that was kind of challenging or maybe scary for you, right, and what was it like for you learning to ride that bike or teaching your kids how to ride that bike. For me, I remember as a kid riding my bike, it was in a park in New York City called Van Cortland in the Bronx. I had a yellow kind of a BMX bike and I had these training wheels. And I just was told, just go around in a circle. Don't even go straight. Just go around in a circle. Go around in a circle. And here I was, you know, you know what it's about? Anybody know what this means, right? That the pedal, the, the training wheels are not even. Right, because you're going side to side, right? Because you haven't found your balancing, and just going around. And I remember going, eventually going so fast that it was like an airplane. My training wheels went up because I was leaning all the way to the left, right? And then I leaned to the right all the way, and eventually, right, all the training wheels went up, and I didn't realize it, but I was actually riding my bike. It was an incredible experience. I remember it, right? And I also remember training, helping teach my girls, two girls, Sophia and Noah, at the same time in Puerto Rico, how to ride their bike. It was a hot, sunny, muggy day, and they didn't have the proper bikes. We thought it, well, one of them didn't. We thought one of them was ready for a bigger bike, be the first bike. That was the first no-no. 
right? You start them off with a smaller bike. That, you know. So I remember putting training wheels. And then Puerto Rico has this, this incredible thing about, it's incredible yet annoying, about putting speed bumps on streets. Have you ever tried to teach someone to ride their bike with, with like 30 speed bumps along the way? I wouldn't recommend doing that. I would recommend find a flat area where there's nothing to cry, and then you have cars lined up left and right. So it was very narrow, one way with speed bumps going all the way. Anyway, my experience, I remember that. It was challenging to say the least, right? And, and so I remember, I remember that so clearly. Now, don't get me wrong, training wheels are awesome. I think training wheels, but now they've moved. They, like, like they have bikes with no pedals that kids just move their feet, right? And they just pedal along like this with their feet, and, and I'm like, ain't that tiring? Just like pedaling, right? Anyway, sneak, where's out the sneakers? Anyway, so there's so many different ways, but training wheels are great, and they're necessary for a season. But imagine if you went out and saw an adult riding their bike with training wheels. <laughs> you start thinking, like, what is going on here? But they're necessary for a season. But eventually, they get in the way. They get in the way, and your kid actually begins to learn how to ride their bike. And most kids don't feel ready, right? Most kids don't feel ready to, to, for, the, for that challenge. They'll be like, oh, Dad, don't, 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 don't take them off today. Today's not the day, Dad. I'm not ready. Right, I can remember holding the bike from the back as, as, as we took them off because I'm, I'm just like, the, I'm that kind of guy. Let's, let's take the Band-Aid off. Let's just, let's just pull it, right? And so, um, so I remember taking the wheels off and holding the bike from the back, and they're pedaling, and, and we're trying to balance, and, and I'm in flip-flops. That's another mistake. It's so hot. And so me and my size 13 in flip-flops chasing after my kid, right, trying to go up to the speed bumps up and down. So it's, 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 I wish there was video for it. It's actually funny, right? But you could see the tent. I could feel the tension in my child. And Sophia and Noah like, Dad, don't let go. Do not let go, whatever you do. And I'm like, stop worrying about me and keep your eyes on the road. We're about to run into the parked car for the 30th time. Right? And so, because you, you're, you're on one side, you try to follow the traffic. It's, it's just an adventure. Anybody been there? And if I'm the only one? Parents agree? Yes? Okay. And those who are not parents, your turn will come. Believe me. <laughs> you're going to remember this message. You're going to remember this message. Right? And most kids don't feel ready for the challenge and the demands of riding without the training wheels. It is scary. Right? It's scary trying to find that balance. Right? You know, it's just, it's just a scary thing for me. Even kids who think that they're ready have second thoughts once they finally get those wheels taken off and they experience how disorienting it is to, to try this, right, to try to find their balance without them. But here's the thing. It's not just kids and it's not just bikes. Have you ever had an experience or stepped into a moment where even, even when you knew or you thought you knew what was coming, you felt completely unprepared, completely unprepared for, or, or, or overwhelmed by how challenging it turned out to be, right? Of course we have. We've all been there. 
We get into something, we think we know what we're getting into, we think we got it all mapped out. Some of us are, are extra planners, like we plan out A to Z, some of us just go straight to Z, right? But we think we know what we're getting into, and, and, and then some of us think, I may, I may not know what I'm getting into, but I'll be able to handle it. And the moment that you're in it, you feel overwhelmed and like, oh my gosh, I did not know this was going to play out this way. I did not know this was going to happen. Maybe it's driving. I remember as a kid, watch, we, I, we, I didn't grow up with a car. We didn't have a car in my family. I, nobody drove in a car. But whenever I was put in the car, it was the back seat of a gremlin. Anybody remember a gremlin? And it was that ugly green gremlin. Anyway, I remember seeing my uncle drive the gremlin, and I just felt like he was going like this. And so when I would pretend to be driving at home as a kid, I would just go like this. I didn't understand that the power steering did not exist back then. I didn't understand that it could have been the road. I didn't understand. But I saw him go like this. So eventually, I was like, oh, when I get in the car, all I got to go like this, right? And I'll be driving. So maybe it was driving for some. Maybe it was climbing something. Maybe it was ice skating, which is not fun at all. Right? Maybe it was hoverboard. Anybody done hoverboarding before? Like those stupid electric things? We got no of that for the Christmas during COVID or something like that. I can't remember exactly what. But I am blessed that I have a corridor in my house. Because that was the safest thing. Because if you fell, you hit the wall. Safe. But God forbid you fell forward or backwards. So I'm not dumb. I wasn't getting on that. Mm. I can't pay me enough. But my wife got on it. I'll leave it right there. Nerve-wracking. Nerve-wracking, right? Or maybe, maybe it's speaking in front of people. Maybe it's leading a group or, or parenting for the first time, right? Your kid gets sick. Like Janelle, uh, who was born, she was born a preemie, and I thought she was just a fire hydrant of throw-up. She was, she was just throwing up all the time, and it made me nervous, so nervous. I'm like, oh, my gosh, she's going to die right here. She, I've, never, I've, just, I've never seen somebody throw up so much, right? I didn't know what to do. It was the first time I was super young. I didn't, know, I, I didn't even want to hold that. I thought she was, she, I would break her, right? It, it was just those things that are just nerve-wracking, and, and you think you're ready, and you think you're prepared, right? But you're really not. Maybe it's a job or responsibilities. And even if you had practice, even if you had prepared for some of it and weren't thrown in kind of cold turkey, it still can be nerve-wracking. It can still bring about anxiety and stress. It could be a little scary and, frankly, overwhelming. Sometimes it's situations that, that, that are, sometimes it's, situ, it's situations that are thrust upon us and we didn't, necessarily signed up for right like oh i didn't know i was gonna volunteer today i bought my best suit today right you mean i gotta go take the trash out like this right they're just different things other times we we may have chosen it but we didn't realize what we were getting ourselves into or what it was going to require of us Either way, we all know what it feels like to be placed in situations that we don't feel ready for, right? Does that make sense? We've all been there and experienced that. Now, surprisingly, we're often placed in those situations by parents, 
Parents are infamous for that, putting their kids in, in those awkward situations. Maybe it's, we've been put in there by teachers, a boss, friends, and mentors that we've trusted. Like, like I've trusted you. <laughs> you gave me this hot mess to deal with, right? And they knew what was coming and, and that we would be overwhelmed and somewhat overmatched or outmatched. But they also knew what was on the other side of it. And the discomfort of the experience would be exactly what we needed at that moment. It's only later, it's only later with the benefit of hindsight that we have the clarity the understanding, and the perspective to see what they saw at that moment before they gave us this challenge. Those challenges were exactly what we needed in order for us to grow, in order for us to progress, in order for us to to move forward. One of the things that I find uh, super interesting is uh, and kind of funny is that when you read the New Testament stories, about Jesus and his followers, Jesus, Jesus seemed to have this oversized assumption about the abilities and the capabilities of his, his followers, of his disciples, of people that he encountered uh, for the first time. And so he, has, he, he was constantly kind of pushing them into situations they weren't ready for. He was constantly pushing them into situations that, that, that they had no training for, where they were way in over their heads. I'm going to give you a few of them. Like, like when, Jesus sends, uh, when it's Jesus tells his disciples to feed a giant hungry crowd of 5,000. Can you imagine being there? Like not, not being one of the hungry people and being fed. Imagine Jesus say, hey, uh, we're going to feed 5,000 people. And you're like, with what? Here's a little basket. Can you imagine the weight of that, like, on you? Or, or when Jesus sends experienced fishermen into the storms on the sea that overwhelmed them. Or, or when they were constantly, uh, when they constantly struggled with managing all of the people and the kids that were attracted to Jesus. Right now, these stars, like people that are, that are famous, have bodyguards and they're pushing people away, like back up, can't step back. No, you can't do that. Can't have a signature. Can't say cheese. None of that, right? But imagine Jesus walking in, all of these people coming, wanting to know Jesus, wanting to speak and wanting to touch him, wanting to get a, you know, a feel for him. And you are trying to fight these people off. That's your job. Jesus ministered to people on the fringes, right? People that were demon-possessed, tax collectors, you name it, which would have been extremely uncomfortable for his disciples. Like, I have to, like, touch that person? Like, I have to say no? Like, this person's going to raise my taxes if I say they can't have a time with you, right? Jesus did things and encouraged them to do things that violated some of the religious norms of the times. Uh, Jesus, I thought you, you you want me to break what rule? Like, you want me to not, that's, that's, that's the law. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm telling you, do something different. I don't know, Jesus. I don't know about this, right? 
Because these are things that they were taught all of their life. And now Jesus jumps onto the scene and he's saying, do different. Jesus sent the 12 out on their own in Matthew 10. And in Luke 10, he sends out an even larger group of 72 of them out. Both times he told them not to take any money, don't bring any belonging, don't bring any food, just trust. So imagine Jesus saying, go, you're on a journey. I'm sending you on a missions trip. Don't bring your money. Don't bring any clothes. Don't bring any food. Don't pack anything whatsoever. Just go. Where are we going? Just go. But, but no, just go. Like, I think he's been sipping on it for a long time. Like, who does that, Right? But he tells them to go not to bring anything with them, no extra clothes, no belts, no shoes. And then in Matthew, he tells them to heal the sick, raise the dead, right? uh, Cleanse those who have leprosy and drive the demons. Easy, simple stuff. You see, the people that Jesus was calling to do, the people he was wanting this from, they they weren't gifted in these areas. They weren't trained for these things. They didn't take discover class. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't go to church for so many years and, and, and try to, you know, they, were, they weren't scholars in this, right? So when you read these stories, it's no wonder that the disciples are sort of kind of helplessly hanging around like, what do we do? Like, I don't know. Like, is he, is he serious about this? Does he really want us to do this, right? They went around putting their foot in their mouth, stepping into it, saying the wrong things, right? Kind of, what were their steps again? Is it one, two, or five, four, or like, what did he say? Like, I've never done this before, and he wants me to go out here and do this. And so obviously, and understandably, they were were a hot mess. They were a hot mess. And now with the resurrection and, and, and the first Easter, it, it had been a, a crazy roller coaster of a ride, right, for the disciples. They were trying to figure all of this out. Their friend and their master, who, who they believed to be the promised Messiah, was unexpectedly arrested and beaten and executed. They watched him die on the cross. They saw him buried. They were scared. They were confused and hopeless. And then all of a sudden, he's alive again. I'm back, right? He's alive again. Can you imagine just being there, one of the disciples, and all of this transpiring right before your eyes? Naturally and emotionally and spiritually, these guys had to be all over the place. Had to be all over the place, filled with a mixture of of disbelief, of wonder, of joy, of confusion, of hope, of fear, and excitement, all at once. There's an emoji for that. You ever seen the emoji? Like, <laughs> that emoji is a it's a it's a mixture of all of it at one point. And after a little bit of time had passed, Jesus arranged to meet with them, and they were still kind of a, a hot mess. And it says in Matthew 28, 16 and 17, Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had said they would find him. There they met him and worshipped him, but some of them weren't sure it really was Jesus. Some of them just 
they weren't sure. So much had, had happened. They saw him get beaten. They saw him die, get, get nailed to the cross. They saw him die on the cross. They saw him go into the tomb and be buried. And now you, you're asking me for like a, a 10 o'clock appointment? Like, I don't know. They worshiped, but some still doubted. Even after Easter, after all he had said and done, after the cross, after the day turned to darkness, after the veil that was torn, right, after the resurrection, after seeing him, touching him, and talking to him, they still doubted. I find it interesting that their worship was mixed with doubt. Ever been there? But your worship is intertwined with your doubt and your fears. And you find yourself be like, God, can you hear my worship? I want to praise you. I want to give you the glory and the honor and call you the thousands of names that you are. But I still have this thing that I don't know if you're going to come through. I still have this worry in my heart that, that this is going to take place or this is where you're leading me. I'm not really sure about this. And so I want to worship you, but I also have these doubts and fears. And, 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 and I worship you here, and, and then I question this here. And, and have you been there before? We often think of them as being mutually exclusive, the disciples. But clearly, they were not. When we think of the disciples, we think of that, man, these are followed men, followers of Jesus. They saw Jesus on earth. They walked with him. They were blessed with him. They broke bread with him. They shared jokes with him. They saw the miracles take place in their life with their very own eyes. But yet, they had doubt. Church, I want to tell you this morning that do not let your doubts define you and your faith because they don't disqualify you from following Jesus. Just because you have doubts does not mean that you are not a believer in Jesus. Do not let the world tell you that you have to be full of faith in order to be a believer. That you don't have to have any questions for him. That you don't have to have any fears, right, to be a believer. That yes, you can worship him in the midst of your doubts, in the midst of your fears, in the midst of your questions, in the midst of your not really understanding or seeing the whole picture. But it's this emotional moment I want to reflect on this emotional moment of doubt-filled worship or, or worship-filled doubt that Jesus drops on them their biggest, most daunting assignment and challenge yet. It's in their midst, right there when they're worshiping, but not really like, am I, is this really happening here? Like, you know, he left us, and he's no longer here. He was our leader, and, and he's not our, here right now physically, but, but yet he's here, and I'm, I'm called to praise him. I'm called to worship him, and I want to worship him. I want to give him my praise and glorify him, but I have questions. And in that moment, Jesus drops it on him. 
Let's continue to read in Matthew 28. It says, verse 18, he told his disciples, man, I have been given all of the authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples in all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teach these new disciples to obey all of the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, that I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So in the midst of the craziness, the confusion, the worship filled with doubt and the doubt filled with worship, he lays on them the biggest challenge ever. This is one of those moments where Jesus seemed to overestimate their abilities. Giving them this assignment didn't really seem to match their recent track record and history. They were doubting him. They had denied him. They had abandoned him. And yet he's asking them to come back to the table. I have a task and I have a purpose for you. I mean, go and make disciples of all the nations. I don't know about you, but that is absolutely massive. He didn't say, go and make disciples of Jerusalem. Go and make disciples of all the fishermen you find. Go and make disciples of Egypt. No, he said, go and make disciples of all the nations. This was absolutely massive, but Jesus is emphatic. Jesus is emphatic. He doesn't want to leave any room for doubt or misunderstanding or interpretation. He is emphatic. In fact, he uses the word all, A-L-L, three or four times to drive home this point. I have all authority. Make disciples of all the nations. Teach them all the commands. I am with you always. He is driving home the point. And this is one of the most pivotal moments in Jesus' movement because it wasn't just an assignment given to those 10 or 12 followers that were there on that day. He was actually speaking to everyone who would ever believe in and follow him. He was laying out what it means to be part of the thing that he started to be part of the team that he came here, to be part of the purpose of why he was brought here on earth. He was saying, man, this is too good. This is too good to keep to yourself. What has just happened here and the message that I came here, my purpose here on earth, it is too good for you to keep it to yourself. You need to take this and run, Forrest. Run, right? Run, head to the hills, get on the boat and and paddle yourself to the next country, to the next city. Get on a donkey and ride it somewhere, anywhere, but don't keep it for yourself. This is too good. It's known as the Great Commission, and this was the moment that initiated all. 
how the gospel got to here to Santa Clarita. That was the very epic moment. That, that, that was the, the ground zero of sharing the gospel. I know it sounds kind of ridiculous, right? And I'm, that pastor, he's emotional today, right? And I also know that it can sound intimidating. But you and I, we are God's plan for how to change the world with the message of his love. You and I, every single one of us here, we are his plan. We come from a generation of people that took the plan, took the purpose, and they took it from somebody else, and they took it from somebody else, and it goes back and back and back, and we trace it all the way back to that precise moment where the Great Commission was handed down. And if you are like me, you feel a little bit of tension thinking about that. Maybe you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed by it. You can understand how it got here. You can understand even probably how it got to you, how someone shared the gospel with you. But now you're hearing that point where the pastor is saying, he didn't just give it to the 10 or 12 disciples then and there. He gave it to you seated sitting here this very moment today. And your response was probably like the disciples. You're feeling the same thing that the disciples are feeling, and that was overwhelmed. Maybe there's some fear, maybe there's some anxiety, just like it was when you started to ride the bike. That's way too big for us. Mm. That's too big of a challenge. We're not ready. I'm not qualified. I, have, I, have st I have still have doubts. I don't even know all the things I'm supposed to do. I just started reading my Bible, and I read it once a month. I just started praying, and I don't even know what I'm praying about. But pastor keeps saying to pray, right? I just started my walk with Jesus. I'm not sure how this goes. I don't have my life together. How does he expect me to share the Great Commission with somebody else? to get their life together, and I don't even have mine. How would we even get started, Pastor? But Jesus doesn't answer any of those questions. He just gives the assignment. And notice he didn't say, go and make Christians. That's not what he said. That's not what he said. He didn't say go and make Christians of the world. He said go and make disciples. And that's part of the challenge. That sounds really spiritual. Go and make disciples. It sounds spiritual and it sounds complicated. But what does it mean to be a disciple, really? What does it really mean? One of the original 12 disciples described it this way in 1 John 2.6. And it says, anyone who says he's a Christian should live as Christ did. Nothing more, nothing less. To be a Christian 
a disciple is to live as Jesus did. This is the essence, church, of following Jesus, of what it means to be a disciple, to live our lives as Jesus lived his life. The goal isn't to follow a religion. That's not what this is about. This is not about following a religion. The goal isn't even to know the right things or believe the right things. The goal is to live like Jesus lived. You don't have to dress the part to be a Christian. You don't have to have the right job to be a Christian. You don't even have to comb your hair the right way to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to try to live your life as Jesus did. You see, church, Christianity goes beyond believing what Jesus said to doing what Jesus said. Even the devil himself believed in God. Even the devil himself believed that Jesus was real. So it's not really about believing in that or understanding. It's actually trying to live a life that resembles the life of Jesus. Okay, Pastor, I get that. I get that. But being a disciple is is challenging enough. Now we're supposed to make them? Like, hello? It's already a challenge you're trying to be when I got to go make disciples. And what's interesting is that the language used in the New Testament for being a disciple is the same language that's used for making disciples. Uh, the way it gets translated depends on the context of it, right? In other words, being is making and making is being. They go together. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, and you should follow my example just as I follow Christ. Part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus' church is that our lives leave a wake. It leaves a wake of other Jesus followers everywhere we go. When we live our lives to resemble that of the life of Jesus, it's that like ripple effect. People around us get impacted by it. It leaves a wave of people that have been impacted by the way we lived our life. The idea isn't become the teacher, uh, I become the teacher and you guys are the students. No, it is us going and finding other students and helping them become good students. And if that's the case, if that's the case, then the reality is that the pressure is off of us. We can just go and love people and invite people into the life of loving Jesus. See, at the end of the day, God's strategy for changing the world is one life. It's one family. It's one neighborhood at a time. It's you and it's me. It's, it's us in this room. There is no plan B. God didn't believe in plan B. There is no plan B. We are the plan. It is you. It is me. It is us. 
We're it. And I know that can sound like a lot, but Jesus seemed to think that we can do it. He didn't offer excuses. He didn't offer escape clauses. He truly believed that we can do it. But if we're going to attempt this, what would it even look like and where would we start? Matthew 8, 20. Again, let's look at that and it says, And then teach these new disciples to obey all of the commands I have given you and be sure of this, that I am with you always, even to the end of the world. He's basically saying, go and tell what you know. Go and tell what you know. Go and tell what you have seen and experienced, which wasn't anything different from what we've been telling people all along. Right? It wasn't, wasn't anything different than what he'd been telling people all along. In Luke 8, there's a guy who's demon-possessed. Right? He was out of his mind, and he's been living outdoors and running around naked, and he's terrorizing the entire village. And then he runs into Jesus, and Jesus heals him, and it restores his mind. Right? And Jesus leads the guy, and the guy runs after him, and he begs him, Jesus, Jesus, I want to go with you. Take me with you. But this is what Jesus tells him. He tells him no. Right? In Luke uh, 8, 39, he says, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go, uh, to go to, but Jesus says no. He says in verse 39, go back to your family, he told them, and tell them what a wonderful thing God has done for you. So he went all through the city telling everyone what Jesus had done, a mighty miracle, right? And so now this story is, 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 is not your story, right? I get that. This story is not your story. It is his story. But the truth of the matter is that you have a story too. You have a story too. A story of what God has done in your life. What Jesus has done in your life. And I want to encourage you today, just as Jesus is asking of us, right, to simply go and tell what God has done for you. He's not asking you to quote scripture. He's not asking you to share the stories of the Bible. He's not asking you to, to remember that time you went to Sunday school as a kid. He's not asking you to bring that about. He's asking you to go to tell your story, what God has done in your life now. But Jesus, but didn't Jesus say to teach them all the commands? What does that mean? Because it seems like it's a lot, like to be teaching all the commands. I barely got one down, right? And he's asking me to, to teach him all the commands. But check this out. In John 13, he says, And so I'm giving a new commandment to you now, to love each other just as much as I love you. Your strong love for each other will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your strong love by the way that you love will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So it's so important, right? He reiterates and clarifies it again a couple of chapters later, right? In chapter 15, verse 12, I demand that you love each other just as much as I love you. Friends, in the Old Testament, there are over 600 rules and regulations, right, that are being taught laws, right, that are being told to us. But in the New Testament, there's only one rule, one law with hundreds of applications. Every single New Testament command is simply an application. It is derived, it is birthed out of the one command that Jesus gives us, and that is to love people. We may not always know what to believe. We may have seasons of doubt, right, just like the disciples, but we always will know how we or what we are to do, and that is to love 
to love, to love, to love, because we know how Jesus has loved us. And that's the beauty of what Jesus was given, of what Jesus has given to us to do. You don't have to preach to anyone. You don't have to be eloquent in your words. You don't have to sell anyone on anything to say Mary Kay, right? You don't have to convince or coerce anyone, right? You just have to go and love like Jesus has loved you and tell them what God has done for you. Love, love, love. Like the disciples, it feels like Jesus may be overestimating your qualities, your abilities, and your uh, capabilities. It feels like an assignment that we're not ready for or qualified to do. It's going to feel uncomfortable because we're in over our heads. It seems daunting and, 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 and too much. But I want you to recall that moment when you learned how to ride your bike. That yes, it was overwhelming at first, but eventually you figured it out. Eventually you did well. Eventually those training wheels came off and you were riding your bike and you were zooming and you were doing tricks and you were doing wheelies and you put the can in the back of the wheel so it go That's just me? Okay. Jesus demonstrated unconditional love for all people. Matthew 28, 18 says, he told his disciples, I have, given all of, I have been given all of the authority under heaven and earth to, to, to push you to do this. In other words, that you can do this. There should be no doubt, right? Because the truth is we tend to trust people to the degree we know that we're loved by them, right? When someone encourages us and tells us to do something, we kind of first be like, who are you? Why are you telling me this? And can I trust you? Right? Because we don't take everything that anybody says and we just go right away and do it. It gets tested. It gets proven. Like, who are you? How much do you care for me? And you're asking me to jump from where? Right? But we know that we can trust God because he loves us. Jesus didn't just claim to love us. He demonstrated ultimate, uh, ultimate love and sacrificing himself on our behalf. And so he holds all of the authority and we have nothing to fear. Then Jesus makes an incredible promise in verse 20. And if you be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So let me wrap this up. Be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the world. That's how he concludes this great commission. These were his very last words. And be sure of this, meaning you can take this to the bank. You can take this to the bank and it will cash out. You can build your life on this. This what I've commanded you to do. You can build a foundation, a solid foundation on this. You can trust in me that I am your anchor on this. And he says, I am with you always. In other words, the one with all of the power and all of the authority, the one who loves you the most, who sacrificed himself for you. I will never fail you. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. I will always 
be with you. Go and make disciples of all nations. Yes, church, it's a big assignment, maybe the biggest, certainly the most important one. And if he thought of it, and if the, excuse me, now the thought of it makes you feel unqualified and inadequate, you're in good company because they felt like that when they first heard it. The disciples felt overwhelmed and outmatched. They were in over their heads. Even as Jesus was speaking to them, they doubted. But none of that, none of that seemed to matter to Jesus. He seemed to believe that this was exactly what they needed to do. This was exactly what they needed to grow and progress in their faith and in their life to become all that God created them to be. Jesus seems to believe that, that, that armed with his love, they were exactly what the world needed. And I want to tell you that it's the same for you today. So go. Go and make disciples. Go to the nations and make disciples. Who can you invite to follow you as you follow Jesus? Every single person in this room knows someone that they can love and share Jesus. Amen.